HSD are experts in delivering tech solutions to the vet sector, working with clients such as the Department of Education, Skills and Employment, ASQA and the VRQA. HSD understand the complexities of VET, its systems and data. We specialise in systems integration, customer relationship management systems, Microsoft platforms and migrating organisations to the cloud. So whether you're looking for advice on integrating your systems, meeting your data reporting requirements or looking to gain insights into your stakeholders, HSD are here to help. Visit hsd.com.au or follow us on LinkedIn. Field and Associates, I'm Claire, and I'm pleased that you could join me for this episode of What Now, What Next? Insights into Australia's tertiary education sector. Episode 75, and this week I spoke with two senior leaders in RMIT University's STEM College, Professor Karen Butler-Henderson, the Director of Digital Health, and Professor Angela Carbone. Associate Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Learning and Teaching. And as you'll hear, Angela is also one of the supervisors of my PhD. I spoke with Karen and Angela about women in university teaching and leadership after they joined with other senior academic women to co-edit a special issue of the Journal of University Teaching and Learning Practice on this topic. In today's episode of the podcast, you'll hear them reflect on their own experiences, as well as sharing research from a number of authors published in the special issue of the journal to explain why so many women in academia remain trapped in roles with heavy teaching and administrative workloads, how that excludes them from career development and leadership opportunities, which in turn makes promotion harder, which again leads to fewer opportunities, and so on and so on. Karen and Angela canvass what needs to change for women to access more research opportunities and have the chance to better balance their teaching with research and underpinned by career flexibility. There's a lot for university leaders, and I would suggest the government, as it sits down to shape the higher education accord with the sector, to be thinking about. The recent Jobs and Skills Summit agreed to a range of measures to improve women's economic participation, including actions such as strengthening existing reporting standards to require employers with 500 or more employees to commit to measurable targets to improve gender equality in their workplaces, requiring businesses with 100 employees or more to publicly report their gender pay gap to the Workplace Gender Equality Agency, and putting in place a carer-friendly workplace framework, which includes a self-assessment tool and learning modules for businesses, and I would suggest universities uh, might come under that definition, to be recognised as a carer-friendly workplace. And these initiatives come on top of the Labor government's election commitments to establish a Women's Economic Equality Task Force to provide independent advice and inform the national strategy to achieve gender equality and to introduce gender-responsive budgeting and apply gender impact analysis on decision-making processes and deliver an annual women's budget statement. 
Let's hope universities look at the changes they can and should be making to improve gender equality in the leadership of their institutions. There are a few publications mentioned in this episode of the podcast, and you'll find links to them in the show notes. And now, here's Angela and Karen. It is my very great pleasure to have not just one, but two um, esteemed professors uh, joining me on the podcast uh, today. The first is actually, I'm very flattered to say, my PhD supervisor, Professor Angela Carbone, who is the Associate Deputy Vice-Chancellor Learning and Teaching in RMIT's STEM College. And also working in the STEM College at RMIT is Professor Karen Butler-Henderson, who is the Director of Digital Health. Uh, Welcome to you both, uh, and thank you very much for for taking the time to join me. I I wonder, I always start off with asking uh, guests, tell me a bit about who you are and your careers, uh, as well as the roles that you currently have. Um, A, because I'm interested in the people that I talk to, and B, because I think it helps us understand your views on the the other issues that that we'll talk through. Uh, So, Angela, um, I know you better than I know, Karen, so I'm going to kick off with you and ask you if you wouldn't mind. Um, What's your role? What's your background? Um, Welcome. Thanks, Claire. Good to be here. So as you said, my role is, you know, in a senior executive position at um, in the STEM College at RMIT University. I have to say one of the best roles anyone could ever have. So we get to look across uh, all the programs that we teach in the STEM discipline uh, and make sure that we improve those courses to give the students the best learning experience, but also upskilling the academics. So, so they're keeping up with the, the latest trends that are happening in uh, in changing their pedagogy or improving their pedagogy and also incorporating some, some digital tools into their teaching to improve their teaching. But just a little bit about me. I was the first in family to go to university. So my parents are from an Italian background. So they were immigrants here in Australia. Uh, They were uneducated, both of them. Um, I really enjoyed the maths and science disciplines, so very much worked in a very male-dominated area. Um, I was the only female that in my high school that went into university that got into to, to Monash. Um, Monash was a very big place for me um, coming from a small high school um, and uh, really enjoyed the, the maths and sciences. In, and then while I was finishing my final years at uni, I was working part-time, had a couple of jobs, you know, um, using both my maths and my computing skills back then. Uh, eventually worked as an actuarial officer but then got contacted by one of the Uh, professors at the university invited me back to the university to do some research work with her and and from there actually moved into a role as a tutor um, and uh, spent pretty much you know from about 1989 I think it was working in, in university so I've been there for quite some time so start off as a tutor eventually completed my PhD uh I was on a casual contract for about 10 years um, one-year contracts, three-year contracts before I moved into a continuing role. And what got me into the continuing role was uh, recognition for my teaching through the Prime Minister's Award, sort of opened up new doors for me as well, progressed 
uh, into more senior academic roles to eventually uh, into an executive role. But but I had some significant achievements in my career and they sort of really propelled me into more senior roles. So the first one was the Prime Minister's Award that, you know, got recognition nationally for my teaching um, and I also had some great support from some key mentors. Uh, the dean of IT at the time, Professor John Rosenberg, was instrumental in, in moving me from a contract to a continuing role. Uh, Marnie Hughes-Warrington, another uh, well-recognised uh, academic in, in the Australian higher education system, provided me with an opportunity to move out of a faculty into a more central role um, and then um, was able to work on some, some national grants, uh, particularly a national teaching fellow that gave me more visibility across the country and sort of propelled me into sort of these executive roles now. That, that tells you a little bit about my history. Thank you uh, very much. Uh, and Karen, uh, your role and, and how you got there. Thanks, Claire. And it's uh, wonderful to be able to be a part of this podcast. So thank you very much for the invitation. So as you introduced, I'm the director of the RMIT Digital Health Hub, which is a university-wide front door for all things digital health uh, across research and across workforce development and training. So it means that I have a very transdisciplinary, holistic view um, of uh, partnerships with industry, being able to bring together really great teams to be able to take multiple look, you know, look at things through multiple lenses. Uh, instead of just addressing problems from one discipline-specific view. Uh, it is the only university that does this model in digital health in Australia, and, and I'm so pleased to be able to provide the leadership within it, but it also allows me to be, a, be able to continue to work with people across both research and, and teaching um, and be able to bring my experiences um, across my 24 years in academia um, and the, the many journeys that I've had. So I actually started um, working in, in project roles in academia and then left uh, and worked in the health industry uh, for a number of years and continued sessionally uh, in the university sector and was at, uh, leading the research office for a statewide uh, health service in Western Australia. I had started my PhD journey and I found myself as a single parent and was invited to join the university full time um, as an associate lecturer and uh, was invited because I was enrolled in a PhD and because I had a strong research background uh, and track record. I joined because the environment that I thought I perceived academia to be, I thought was going to be really conducive to my family situation at the time um, and found in that very first semester, I found myself coordinating and teaching into five subjects. Uh, and that pattern continued throughout the, that first organisation I was with, um, right the way throughout very, very heavy teaching loads. And I remember several times just reflecting that, I had been brought into this role because of my research background and yet here I was in the very lowest level um, working my way through promotion uh, through to senior lecturer and doing, again, heavy teaching loads. So when I found myself, found an opportunity to be able to move organisations, I actually made a very conscious decision that in my new organisation I was going to regain that 
that research um, load, not take on such heavy teaching loads, increase the leadership roles that I was doing. Um, and whilst it took some time um, and certainly a lot of dedication to uh, that agenda, being trying to just protect that time for leadership and for research, I, I had um, advocates and, and mentors along the way that also empowered me and enabled me to be able to do that. And I really do believe that's what helped me get through to where I am now at RMIT, my third academic organisation, um, as a professor leading a university-wide um, organisation. It's, it's about how I had to be proactive about protecting my time, but also those that both mentored me and empowered me um, by be, being able to afford me some opportunities to um, take leadership, not just in teaching, because I am still a strong teaching leader, but also within research and within that engagement um, area and, and senior leadership roles. Thank you. And you've both, uh, I've been nodding as, as you've been uh, talking, and you've both talked about some of the challenges that you experienced and uh, the, the mentors and support that you had and, and how instrumental that was. And reflecting on that, I mean, one of the reasons for um, inviting you both was that recently uh, you, along with other colleagues, um, edited a special issue of the Journal of University Teaching and Learning Practice, and that issue was focused specifically on women in leadership in higher education. And I wonder if you can talk through the issues, you know, you've, you've touched briefly on them, but the issues confronting uh, female academics in Australian universities and, and including those from underrepresented groups. And Angela, you've spoken a little bit about um, your experience there coming from, you know, your, your family background. So I wonder, I'll go, Angela, to you first and, and then Karen, if I can. Sure. Um, look, uh, I, I think coming from a family where no one in your family has gone to university, it's all new. Um, so for me, I was just finding my way um, and, and I was doing the things that I liked and the things that I liked was teaching and teaching related administration and some of the research that's come out. Uh, Jasphere Singh in one of in her paper in our special issue talks about uh, administration loads that that women have, um, they're, they're likely to take a lot more teaching uh, loads. And we heard that from Karen. And I started off as a tutor. And the only thing I was doing was 15 hours of teaching. And I loved it. But I was also doing all the administration that comes towards that. Now, that's great. But it unfortunately, it doesn't help you get promoted in the university system. It's really important that you are research active. Um, and I really loved my job. And so the reason why I did my PhD was I wanted to retain my job. I wanted to, to, be, to be able to continue teaching, um, but at the same time knew the importance of research because that did feed into my teaching, even though it took me 10 years to do my, my PhD. And think people would say, and I would never think that I would spend 10 years doing my PhD, but when you think about it, um, when I was doing my PhD, I took a year off because I got the Prime Minister's Award and I was doing a lot of travelling at the time, so I put my PhD on pause. I also had two children and and that takes time, you know, being a new mum with, with two kids. Um, so there was a career interruption and there was carer responsibilities and Rashmi Watson in, in one of the papers that she has presented in our journal talks about, you know, the time that that women need to take for those career interruptions and those care responsibilities. And, 
you know, with, with that, and we've especially seen it with COVID coming on, there's even more carer responsibility with a lot of the women taking on the homeschooling. But with that, uh, with increased care responsibilities and interruptions, there's less time to engage in the research. And if there's less time to engage in the research, then there's less opportunity to advance. Um, and then that impacts on your career progression. Um, you know, Marcia Devlin writes this, has got this beautiful book that she's written. It's called Beating the Odds, a Practical Guide to Navigating Sexism in Australian Universities. I mean, she does a deep dive in some of the issues in her latest books, but I know that Karen's got a few issues that um, she'd like to raise as well. So I'm going to pass it over to Karen. Please. Thanks, Angela. And I think just following on from that point about um, Reshmi Watson's paper, she also really looked at motivation, you know, for career motivation. And she talked about those challenges of, um, you know, workload, support, career progression as things that made um, people less motivated within their careers. But then conversely, where there was um, leadership opportunities, research opportunities, flexibility within the roles, that actually motivated people within their careers. And then we actually saw them progress um, with their careers, but also into leadership roles. And so being able to remove some of these barriers um, is, you know, one of those potential solutions. But there's so many other barriers. So, for example, this, this special issue was actually born out of a commentary that was published the year before on International Women's Day um, by Kellyanne Allen from Monash University, um, Work Like a Girl is what it was called, and that did a very broad analysis um, of all of the issues uh, facing women within higher education. Um, our special issue looked at just within teaching and, and leadership um, issues but but one area that uh, that was examined within our special issue was how students were more critical towards female teachers within you know student evaluations. Kathy Tangalakis from um, Victoria University actually was able to quantitatively examine how um, students in their evaluations would be equally positive about male and female um, teaching staff, but have more critical comments for female staff. And in that, that um, commentary the year before, we looked at how, you know, female academics were less cited, less likely to be able to get grant opportunities. And this creates then issues with promotion, with future grant funding, with future invitations to be on external panels and chairs and journals and et cetera. So, you know, these all accumulate um, and and or interrelate with each other. Yeah. So the soon as you you miss out on one opportunity, it's that much harder to gain the next one, which in turn makes it harder again and again and again. So you've both talked about uh, some of the issues, and uh, Karen, you touched on one of the the potential solutions. So. Um, we haven't yet seen the specifics of the accord and the discussions and conversations that the government wants to have with the university sector, but it's fair to say that they've they've come to government uh, with probably a different view of universities than, than the former government had. So let's share some ideas while they're thinking about universities. Um, what are some of the solutions 
that would make things better for um, women uh, in um, senior academic roles or helping them to, to attain those roles? And are there areas where government could encourage some positive changes? So, Karen, uh, to you and, and then um, Angela. Yeah, certainly um, it starts with our leaders being able to have a clear shift in leadership thinking about being able to create cultures of workforces that support women. Instead of employing women into heavy teaching or teaching-focused, very low-level academic positions and actually creating opportunities in leadership um, roles and, and with more senior academic roles with a blended uh, teaching and research um, roles is, is how we start shifting that, how we can um, look at how we measure the um, performance of women. I think we need to see a shift there, uh, whether it's a, do we benchmark women differently to how we benchmark males, just considering what I was talking about before about, you know, the critic, being more critical of females or less cited or et cetera. Um, Making panels, promotion panels, grant application panels, etc., more aware of this literature that is showing the um, the differences between you know how men and women are rated or ranked or assessed or etc., and having some of that unconscious bias training built in um, to these these types of panels, and most importantly, if I reflect back on my what what is what was successful for me it's about mentoring women to also be able to um be proactive and and take some of their own leverage of being able to shift that dial trying to to it's very challenging to do but being able to shift from that that very heavy teaching loads into um you know more balanced workloads and having those leaders actually empower women by shifting those workloads um, and creating opportunities for women. Thank you. Um, Angela? Yeah, just, um, you know, when I reflect on, on my journey as well, one thing that really helped me, or well, a couple of things that really helped me, uh, one was that, you know, my higher education institution allowed, gave me the flexibility um, to, to work because I really wanted a career that was really important to me. But I also wanted to be a mum and raise my kids as well. So having that flexibility that, you know, being allowed to work from home um, but also go into the office in sort of um, child-friendly hours. So, and, you know, the way I managed my career was, you know, and I'm sure lots of women do this, but, you know, they go into the office, they pick up their kids, do the activities with their kids. When your husband gets home from work, he pass the kids over to the husband and then, continue logging, you know, and continue working might be from eight till midnight. So your whole day was pretty packed. You know, there was, you had to find, really find some times to sort of wind down. But having that flexibility allowed to progress in my career, but also bring bring up my family as well. Another thing that really helped me, um, as I mentioned, was to have those mentors, you know, coming in into uh, and an environment where you've had no experience or no one around you, you know, none of my family went to university, so I had no guidance. Um, and it was all, my learning was all done through observation, my own observation, um, and sort of used people that I connected with as mentors as well. So having those mentors, I know at some institutions they had active like shadowing programs where you could shadow an executive. So those sorts of opportunities are really, really important. 
I think the other thing the government can do is um, from other research, not necessarily not research around leadership, is um, females and males both don't really have leadership models to work from. So better exposure to leadership models, and that might come through a bit of professional development. Um, so there's a role there for professional development, for mentoring and shadowing and flexibility. Um, and I think, you know, for women that are coming in from overseas, and we do have, you know, women from overseas coming into university, they might, and one of the, this is one of the suggestions that um, that came out of Vashia Singh in her paper was that, you know, you don't just need one mentor, you might need several mentors. You might need a mentor from an Australian institution, but you also might need a mentor from your home country because you're sort of trying to bring together two cultures. My my culture at home coming from a you know Italian background where my parents couldn't speak English. Um, very different culture to the Australian culture that um, that you're in. And, and you did feel um, back in those times, very inclusion wasn't a word back in the you know early 80s, 70s. There was a lot of exclusion and we've moved a long way, but I still think there's a, there's a lot more work to do in that space as well. Thank you. So we really need leadership that really embraces inclusion and that recognises uh, the, the barriers and hurdles that women have and part of helping them do that is recognising that while universities tend to promote on academic and research excellence, that might not necessarily give you the people management skills required to develop and support and uh, mentor um, your staff. Thank you. Um, you've inspired me. I'm sure you will have inspired uh, listeners as well. Um, I'm enormously grateful for you taking, I know you've both got a super busy day today. Thank you both very much for, for joining me today. Thanks, Claire. Thank you so much, Claire. Pleasure.